You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here. If we have some people still looking for seats, I know this might be awkward, but we have seats right here up front. So, I mean, you know, I know it's a little awkward to come up front during the sermon, but don't worry. Um, I have kids. I totally understand interruptions. So to, we're in a, a series through the, the um, book of Acts called Gospel uh, to the City. And what we're focusing on is the early church, seeing how this early church grew and learning from this book of Acts. Now we find ourselves today in Acts 1, uh, excuse me, Acts 8, and we're going to look at uh, the first 25 verses of Acts 8, and the title of this message is The Gospel Unleashed. Now today we're going to meet someone named Philip. We've already met Philip, actually. He was in Acts 6, one of the men who were chosen, uh, just like Stephen, who we studied last week. And history records that Philip got this name, this famous name. He was Philip the Evangelist. Now that's a pretty cool name to have uh, throughout history, to be known as Philip the Evangelist. But today's message, what we're going to learn is that he's not the only one who can carry that title. And in fact, it's not meant for him to be the only one who can carry that title. That we too can carry the title of an evangelist. And it's very root word if we were just to try to think of what an evangelist is. Not even thinking about Christianity. It is someone who proclaims or teaches a message in order to persuade or convince others of its truthfulness. It's someone who proclaims or, or teaches a message in order to convince or persuade others of its truthfulness. And we all do that in different degrees. And today we're going to find out in this text that we can all be a part of this work. Now, an example of that is even my daughter, Ellie. Now, some of you know Ellie. She's four years old, and we've started to give her the nickname Ellie the Evangelist because there's just something about this girl uh, that she loves Jesus even at her early age. When we go to the park, uh, she has an imagination like no one else, and she finds friends, and she wants to play with them. And, you know, kids always want to play different things. They're like, let's play house, let's play doctor's office, whatever. You know, they just come up with different things, different scenarios. And Ellie runs up to this girl, and she goes, let's play church. <laughs> I'm like, well, your theology is a little off there, but uh, that's, you're, you're on the right track, girl. Uh, or during reading time during school, because virtual school this year, we got to interact a lot more with, with what was going on. And uh, they had reading time, and the kids are bringing their favorite books, and everybody's like, oh, I love this book, uh, you know, Lama Lama, Red Pajama, whatever. And she goes, I love the Jesus Storybook Bible, right? <laughs> to like the whole class. And the teacher's like, yeah, that's a great book, yeah. Um, and my favorite, though, was, was during song time. So they got to, to share their favorite songs in their class. And, you know, these kids are you know, going on about Baby Shark being their favorite song, or, you know, like, Let It Go, and, and then it gets to Ellie, and Ellie's, like, raising her hand, she wants to answer, and I'm like, oh, gosh, what is she going to say? I have no clue. I'm not prepared for this, and she goes, my favorite song is Jesus Loves Me. Now, that's the awe moment, right? But for the next, like, four or five minutes, she begins to then sing the song for the entire class. Now, that wasn't the goal, right? It was just to share, but she decides she's just going to sing it anyways. It was the longest and slowest rendition of Jesus Loves Me I've ever heard. Now, the bottom line is that even my daughter, Ellie, who I pray one day knows the love of Jesus uh, to its fullness, uh, can be an evangelist. She can share about things that matter to her. In this text today, we're going to see that the gospel is being unleashed through ordinary people in a part of uh, the, the Middle East that it had not yet gone. And we're going to see it's not just Philip. But just like last week, the main idea is, in, in fact, it's the exact same main idea we saw in the text last week, that God's work 
is primarily done through ordinary people doing ordinary things with Christ-centered intentionality. It's not just the apostles taking the gospel. In fact, it's not the apostles taking the gospels to these cities in Samaria. It's ordinary people, just like you and me. And so we find ourselves in uh, kind of a a new chapter in the book of Acts, if you will. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 1, you would see in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says he's talking to the apostles. He's telling them before his ascension that you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be witnesses to this gospel message, and you're going to do it in Jerusalem. You're going to do it in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in these first seven chapters, we've seen this take place in Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea. And the apostles have been proclaiming the truth of God. We've seen uh, miracles performed through Peter and John, and, and God miraculously saves them from prison. Persecution is coming to the church. And then we get to Acts chapter 6 and 7, and we see the story of Stephen and his execution. And after that, there's this massive persecution that is now happening to the church in Jerusalem. And what's happening is they're now being scattered to this area, just like Jesus promised, of Samaria. And now we're in a next chapter as the gospel has gone from Jerusalem to Samaria. And we're going to find today in our text are marks of what this mission looks like. Because what we're seeing here is that the church is on mission now. And by that, what we mean with the word mission, if you were just to look at the root word, that is to be sent. And the church is finally sent out of Jerusalem. They're on mission through the, the circumstances of persecution. And we're going to see that there are three marks, particularly in this text, of what this mission looks like. And here they are. They're up on the screen for you. We're going to see that the mission of the church is an organic mission. It's an embodied mission. And then finally, it's a grace-filled mission. And I hope as we look into this and we see how this church was sent out from Jerusalem, that it would encourage us as King's Church to live our lives on mission here in our city as ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Let's go ahead and look at the text. We're going to go back to verse uh, 1 just to get some context here. And it says, And Saul proved his execution, being Stephen, who was just executed. And we see now what happens after Stephen's martyrdom. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. It's important. We'll come back to that in just a moment. In verse 2, The devoted men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul who we'll hear more about in the coming weeks. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So instead of feeling uh, repentance in his heart towards the message that Stephen proclaimed, uh, Saul is filled with this rage and this anger towards the church. And then we get to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, what we see in these first five verses is simply this, that when the gospel left Jerusalem, it was not carried by the apostles. Notice that he puts this accept clause in the verse, right? In verse 1, they were scattered throughout the region, except for who? The apostles. Now, he's putting that there in the text, the author's putting it there in the text, not to signify and focus on why the apostles stayed, but more the focus on why those were scattered and what they were doing outside of Jerusalem. And we see for the very first time that the gospel is being carried out of the walls of Jerusalem. It's being carried on the backs of normal, ordinary people who had believed in the message of Jesus. 
Now, this is an important fact for us today because if we think about the Gospels and one of the most famous passages at the end of the Gospels, we call it the Great Commission. If you're not familiar with the Great Commission, it's when Jesus, he tells his disciples that you're going to go into the nations and you're going to make disciples of all nations. And what we see here is the sign for how that is going to occur. That it's going to occur, we're going to make disciples of all nations as we, ordinary people, do ordinary things with Christ-centered intentionality. Now, an application for us today is simply this, that if we want to be an organic mission here at King's Church, then we need to move from ministry consumers to ministry providers. Notice in this text that uh, if we go back all the way to Acts chapter 2, the church, as they were gathering together, they were listening and they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were consuming more and more of what the apostles were teaching, learning about the kingdom of God, learning about the message of Christianity. And now, through the circumstances of persecution, they are scattered, and they are no longer consumers of ministry. They are now providers of ministry. They have now been scattered throughout the region, taking the gospel and sharing the gospel, as the text says, not only Philip, but all who went preaching the word. Now, the reason we say this is an organic mission is because it's not top-down. It's not command and control. It's not a bureaucratic mission. We don't see the apostles getting together and huddling together and saying, okay, let's develop this plan, let's develop this strategy, and then let's go to each individual uh, person of the church, let's tell them, this is where you're going to go, this is what you're going to do, right? That's not what happened here. Through the natural, or really the, the, the normal, it became normal, the normal life circumstance of persecution, the church was scattered, it was grassroots. They went out and, and they did it in an organic mission. It reminds us, again, that it's not just the job of a top few clergy to impart truth to this world. That the gospel is not always going to be carried by professional missionaries or evangelists or apostles. It belongs to all of us. It's organic. It's dynamic. It's grassroots, united around the same truth of who Jesus Christ is. Now, I know some of you have ended up here in D.C. by design. You were probably a class president, or you were on student government, or you did boy state, or girl state, or, or all these different things, and you were on this trajectory to come to D.C. But I've talked to several of you as well who have just happened upon the city, and you have no clue why you're here, and you have no clue why you're staying here anymore. And I'm here to tell you that your position and place here in D.C. is not by accident, but by design. You see, these early believers probably didn't understand why they were being scattered, but it was all by design. It was fulfilling the way God had intended for his church to move forward into the area of Samaria. And so if you're here today, whether you have made it your life's journey to be a, a D.C. citizen or <laughs> whether you just happened upon this city, you're here for a reason. And the Holy Spirit's plan for getting the gospel in this city does not necessarily just involve someone standing on a platform like this and proclaiming truth, but it involves you living life as an ordinary person, doing ordinary things in the networks that God has blessed you with, with Christ-centered intentionality. And there's power behind the words that they are proclaiming in these first five verses. And where's that power come from? Again, going back to Acts 1.8. Jesus reminds us that we receive power, and it's not just the apostles that receive that power. It's all of us that receive the power of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to speak the words of Jesus. Now, I love in the Gospels in Luke 12, Jesus promises us that when we speak, he gives us, the Holy Spirit gives us words at the hour that we need them. 
Right? Oftentimes, we, we might be fearful to jump into conversations, to, to be fearful to take that leap of faith, but the Holy Spirit is there to empower our words. Uh, I, I remember the Last Dance documentary. Anybody ever watched that documentary, The Last Dance, Michael Jordan? It was like, it was like the COVID documentary, right? It's one of my favorite. Uh, but in that documentary, there's one little small section. It's not a big section, but, in, but I love it. It talks about his creativity of the dunks that he does in dunk contests. And they ask him, they're like, how do you come up with these like, creative, incredible dunks? And Michael Jordan just says, I just jump and think about it in midair. <laughs> like, like, how incredible of an athlete do you have to be to, ha- to not premeditate what you're going to do, just jump, and then just, like, wing it while you're in the air, right? But I think that's a great analogy for us, honestly. When we live life with Christ-centered intentionality, it may feel like sometimes that we jump. And we may not have all the answers yet. We may not feel like we're the most adequate or equipped to speak. But that's what God's calling us to do. He's calling us just to jump into conversations, and trust that he will provide the words to speak. Just take the jump and know that the Holy Spirit is there to empower us and to fill us with the words to speak. I love in Matthew 11, he tells us that the greatest pre-Jesus prophet to live was John the Baptist. I mean, he literally says, anyone born of woman, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist could come here, and and if he came, we would let him take the pulpit because he would speak with power and authority like no other. But you know what the rest of the verse says? He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's crazy, right? I mean, think about it. The one who is least capable of speaking the word of God, like the one who feels least, and you may be feeling that right now. Like, let's just mathematically, someone in this room is the least capable, okay? Like, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but but mathematically, someone in this room feels right now, like I am the least capable to do what Philip and these other believers did. Right? And God's like, yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's confirmed, right? But, but Jesus says here, listen to this. This is important. Jesus says that even if you feel like you are the least capable, you have more power and potential in the Holy Spirit than John the Baptist. You have more power and more potential in the power of the Holy Spirit than John the Baptist. See, God's mission is organic in the fact that ordinary people, just like you and me, were filled with extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit, and they took that jump. They spoke the word of God as they were scattered throughout the region of Samaria. Now, next we see that it's not only an organic mission, it's also an embodied mission. Let's look at verse 6. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him, they, and they saw the signs that he did. Now, it's important here that the first thing we see is that Philip's ministry and the ministry of the church was a spoken ministry. They're hearing what he's having to say. They're hearing him proclaim Christ. And if you were to go all the way down to verse 12, you see, again, Philip is preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. It's very important that we understand this, that the church's ministry, as we live on mission, is a ministry of word. We speak truth. We speak truth into our culture. We speak the truth of who Jesus is, the only way of salvation, the hope of salvation. But notice what the text says. It's not only his words. There were other things that were happening that drew the people in. It says they saw the signs that he did. Verse 7, For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. See, Philip's ministry was one of both word and deed. It was embodied, meaning it was visible. It was tangible. People saw the evidence 
of his ministry right in front of them. Notice what's happening here. He's providing both for the needs physically and spiritually. That those who are paralyzed were healed, and those who had unclean spirits were being cast out. Perhaps the takeaway application point for us is simply this, that we are called to help meet spiritual and physical needs. We are called, as the church, to live an embodied mission to meet spiritual and physical needs. Now, he says that these miracles that he is is performing here, the text says that they are signs. They're pointing to something, right? Like, if, if you're going to the monuments today and you're wondering where the White House is, I hope you know where the White House is if you live here, but if you're not from here and you're looking for one of the monuments, you look for signs that will point you to the real deal, right? The focus is not the signs. The focus is what the signs are pointing to. And here he's performing these miracles because these miracles are pointing to the greater reality of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like. So the healing of the lame reminds us that Jesus is bringing life to our bodies. Healing of the blind reminds us that he is opening up our eyes to see who he is. These miracles are pointing to the greater fact of the word that he is proclaiming, the Christ that he is proclaiming. And oftentimes we tend to lean one way or the other when when we think about the needs of our world. We don't live in a superstitious culture, but if we did, we we might say that everything in this life is spiritual, right? Like, I got a headache today. It's probably those demons in my brain again, right, causing migraines. Everything's spiritualized, right? But then in a materialistic culture, which is what we live in, everything is is database, it's scientific. It has a reason or rhymes to it. There's a, em, empirical data that we can back it up. Like, you got a headache? Okay, this is why. This is why that's happening. Let's go to WebMD. Oh, my gosh, you might have something really wrong with you. Uh, wrong idea. Uh, let's just take some, you know, migraine medicine, right? But the gospel tells us that it's both, right? The gospel meets us in our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs, That this world is fallen, the physical reality of this world is tainted by sin, and so are our very hearts. And it's the gospel that can enter in and provide both word and deed. Now notice that is when he performs these signs, it says that they listened to him because his words were backed up by his actions. You see, when the city sees us as Christians pouring out ourselves for the physical, material needs of people, for the downcast, for those who are hurting, when they see that we've been incredibly transformed both spiritually and we're transforming others spiritually and physically, then guess what? People will notice, and they will listen to our words. When we pour ourselves out, that's what makes a difference. Not just when we gather big crowds, when we gain more turf in the city, we're just like any other startup in the city uh, that's all about just the numbers, but when there's an actual difference in the way in which we live our lives, embodied truth, just like Philip. Now notice we meet this other character in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Man, this guy has some uh, pride issues, right? I mean, he is a self-proclaimed great guy. He would make a wonderful politician in Washington, (laughs) D.C. Verse 10. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. By whom? By himself, apparently, right? He's Mr. Awesome. 
And they paid attention to him because for the long time, verse 11, that he had amazed them with his magic. Now, this magic is not like when you go to like a, you know, a kid's party or maybe you had a magician come to your party as a kid that like pulled the rabbit out of the hat or something. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, this, is a ma- this is a magic that was probably a little bit of, of knowledge, like real knowledge, mathematics, astronomy, uh, probably mixed with like some, some folklore, like charms or horoscopes mixed with like sleight of hand stuff, right? Um, so, so this guy is, is uh, doing this magic and people are wow by his magic. And then look what happens in verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, what this this text is showing us is the clear difference between Simon's tricks and the authentic power of God in his people, right? Simon had magic tricks. Philip was performing miracles through the power of God. Now, we'll get back to Simon in just a moment, but let's look at something else in this text. It says that when these people, men and women, when they heard the good news, something happened. They believed, and they were baptized. Now, I don't want to skip over this subtle fact, because it's really important in the context of this text. What we see here is a community being united in Jesus. And we as a church are called to be that kind of united community. This is significant, guys, because in our culture, and and probably even more so because of this past year, we really like to individualize our faith, don't we? I mean, it's the American way. It's me and Jesus. I have my needs, I have my problems, and I can, I can figure out a religion that meets those needs. But notice here, what's happening is these men and women, when they believe, they are being baptized. And baptism is no private matter. Baptism is public. Baptism is not individualistic. Baptism is communal. Baptism is showing the city of Samaria that I'm identifying with Jesus himself and these other people who are being baptized that I am making a statement, a promise that I'm going to live as a Christian. I'm going to be part of this new community of people that have made this promise together, and we're holding each other accountable. We're supporting each other in this new endeavor to live for the Messiah, Jesus, the one who has been proclaimed as good news to us. Now, why is this unique? Why is this interesting here? Because this is the first time we see Samaritans and Jews in the same community. This is the first time we see Samaritans and Jews joining the same community. It's not only a fulfillment of Acts 1.8, but we're seeing the gospel reconcile ethnic groups that had thousands of years of bad blood. It goes back thousands of years when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And during that time, I'm not going to give you the whole history. You can go read about it. Uh, But during that time, they forced intermarriage. And then they moved back to this region that in, in this time is called Samaria. And they populated this region with these new ethnic group of half-Jews and half-Gentiles. They were called the Samaritans. Now, Jewish people, and in, in, in the Old Testament, they really value purity, right? I mean, if you look at it, they don't, uh, they don't even wear clothes with mixed like clo- clothing, right? Uh, they, they value purity. And so they were definitely not a big fan of this mixed new ethnic group. In fact, history tells us that if, if they saw some 
so, so much as someone sitting on something that was a Samaritan, they would not touch it because they would feel like they'd be unclean, right? They would literally add an entire day's travel from go, to go from north and south so they can go around the city of Samaria. You may think, well, man, they really didn't like those guys. I feel bad for the Samaritans. Well, the Samaritans weren't the nicest people in the world either. <laughs> uh, they believed that they had the one true temple of God. Uh, they also did some really agonizing things to the Jews. Sometimes it was comical. Uh, sometimes it was very cruel. Uh, like during the first day of Passover, there's records of them launching pigs and bones into the temple so to defile the temple so that Passover could not happen. Like this isn't just like college pranks gone bad. Like this is real hatred, like deep animosity towards one another. And here in this text, we have a Jew, Philip, being embraced by the Samaritans. Samaritans, baptizing them into this new community. If, if you go to our, our website or you come to our new informational class, you'll hear that we have, under our vision statement, we have a mission statement that reads this. We want to be a unique, impactful community united in Jesus. Only the gospel can create this kind of unity that overcomes years of hurt and mistrust between the Samaritans and the Jews. A unity that we long to see in our society. I was reading a, a sociologist who said recently when it comes to ethnic groups in our society, the sociologist said, we know how to forcibly integrate society. We know how to pass laws to guarantee fairness. What we haven't been able to do is make races and cultures love and embrace each other. You know why? Because politics are unable to do that. Social media is unable to do that. The next New York Times bestseller book is unable to do that. Only the gospel can and did do that in one afternoon when Jesus died on the cross, bringing reconciliation not between us and God, but also us and one another. It is the gospel message that identifies our common problem in humanity and the common solution in Christ Jesus himself. It is the gospel here that we see in this text in Acts 8 that is breaking down barriers and making friends of people who otherwise would hate each other. And when we as a community, as King's Church, when we live out the word of God, indeed in community like this, people notice. People notice when a group of people like this who are all unique and different come and love each other because we have the one thing that binds us together, and that is Jesus Christ. And what does it say the result is in a city that we just don't preach the word of God, but we combine our teaching and preaching of the word of God with deed and community reconciliation? Verse 8, there's great joy in that city. Not just great joy for those who had come to faith in Christ, but for the entire city. It reminds me of Proverbs 11.10 that says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. The question as King's Church we need to ask ourselves is if we are prospering, if we are growing, if good things are happening, and by God's grace, good things are happening. We don't have any seats in the house left. Good things are happening, right? We need to ask ourselves the question, if we are prospering, are we prospering in such a way when the city looks at us, they say, you know what, I might not believe what you guys believe, but I'm glad you're here. I might not believe what you believe, but you are a blessing to this city. And how do we do this? How do we become a blessing to our city? How do we become this, this, this people uh, who is on mission in an organic way and in an embodied way? What well, comes through our point number three that this mission is filled with grace. It is a grace-filled mission. Let's pick up in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For they had not yet fallen on any of them, 
for he had not yet fallen on any of them, and they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, a, a kind of an a interesting passage, theologically. Uh, it is the only time we see after Pentecost when the, the falling of the Holy Spirit is delayed on those who believe in Jesus Christ. Now, why is this happening? What is unique about the situation? Well, in context, again, as we just discussed, this is the first time that there are Gentiles who are believing and being baptized and entering into the church. This is a barrier-breaking moment in history. It is a barrier-breaking moment. And the apostles come down from Jerusalem to witness this unique situation, that there are those who are being baptized who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And they come in this groundbreaking situation because there had been years and years of hostility, and it's the apostles who come and confirm that the witness of the gospel is true, that these Samaritans, who otherwise would have never have believed, are believing in Jesus Christ and are now included in the church. You think of it this way. It's kind of like a, a verification or a, a ribbon-cutting ceremony. In the 19, or excuse me, in the 1840s, New York City uh, received water and sewage. And in the five boroughs, as the, as the water and sewage began to flow for the first time, the mayor would go into each one of those boroughs and do a ribbon-cutting ceremony. And so they turned the water on, and they would go into one of the boroughs, and, and then they would go to one house, and they would do a ribbon-cutting ceremony to verify that the water is now flowing in that part of the city. Now, they didn't go to every single house after that, right? They went to one to verify that the authenticity that that water is now flowing in that borough. And then they went to the next one and the next one and so forth. And we see this happening uniquely in the book of Acts. And when the gospel goes to places that has never been before, particularly when we see the first Gentile believers coming into the faith, God uses the Jewish apostles to go up there and to confirm that there would be no more hostility, there's no more doubt that the gospel is continuing to expand in Gentile regions. And then we get to verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was giving uh, through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. I mean, this guy, he's just something else, isn't he? Verse 19, saying, give me this power also. What a polite way to ask. Uh, So that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Blessings and encouragement to you, Simon. I mean, what a way uh, to deliver the gospel message, right? And Simon answered him, verse 24, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So in the first part of this story with Simon the magician, we find the contrast between Simon's tricks, his, his foolishness in a way, and the real authentic power of God working through Philip. And here we see the contrast between Simon wanting to purchase the power of God and Simon Peter, who has understood the grace of God. See, Simon Peter, he, he had his own way of words in the Gospels, right? And he messed up thoroughly at times. And yet Jesus, in his grace, restores this man. And here we see his message to Simon so clear in verse 20. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. His answer is that this 
power that you're seeing displayed, it comes to us through a gift, through grace. You can't purchase a gift. A gift can't be earned. It can't be bought. It can't be achieved. It's grace. And the Christian faith is that salvation is a free gift of sheer grace to undeserving people because of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That's why in this passage from the beginning to the end, we see Philip and the other believers at the beginning and all the way to verse 12, proclaiming Christ. Why? Because that is full stop the gospel message right there. That every other religion would say, how do you earn this power? How do you earn the ability to lead in this church? Simon's asking these questions. He's asking it through wanting to purchase their power. How do you earn this thing? Every other religion will say, you want salvation, you want deliverance from darkness, you want to escape guilt, you want a new life. Do all these other things. And let's not be mistaken, we should do good deeds. We should have an embodied mission. But that embodied mission is foundational when we understand the grace given to us by Jesus Christ. The gospel message is not do these things. The gospel starts with Christ. He is the gospel. He is our salvation. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, when I first came to you to the church of Corinth, I intended to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Now, obviously, we're not taking this completely literal. I mean, there's more to a life change. There's more to the Bible than just Jesus and his crucifixion, right? But Paul is trying to say to us from the very beginning of the gospel message, it has nothing to do with what I can do but everything to do what he has done for me. And because of that, I come proclaiming Christ in him crucified. Because only when we understand that Jesus has done something for us, he is our substitute in our place, that we can understand how to be right with God. Simon's given that opportunity. Peter, verse 22, tells him, repent. You're not right with God. Repent. Repentance is when we are able to take the burden off of our shoulders. We don't have to try to, re, uh, to, to purchase something that we cannot earn, like Simon. The burden's off of our shoulders. And we understand this truth, that the mission we're on is filled with God's grace. When that becomes the background music to our lives, then we can live our lives as ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So as we come to the time of the Lord's Supper, I just want to conclude with this. If you notice in this passage, the city of Samaria did not have joy prior to the church being scattered. Until Christians were scattered from their home, the city did not receive life and joy. That, my friends, is following the pattern of Jesus himself. Because Jesus couldn't save us unless his life was literally scattered. Until he was broken to pieces. Until he died for us. And if we're going to follow in his footsteps today, then the way this city, D.C., is going to experience true life and joy is going to come when we're willing to be scattered as well. That may mean that if you identify as a Christian here in D.C., to some degree, your reputation will be scattered. If you give your money to the needy and to the church, then to some degree, your wealth will be scattered. If you live for the glory of God or the glory of a political party, then some of your networks might be scattered. If you really get emotionally involved and invest in the lives of people in order to love them and care for them, then to some degree, our energy and our happiness will be scattered. It might be hard at times, but it is through our scattering that D.C. can experience true life and joy. And in verse 25, it reminds us, 
when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The gospel goes forward in every village and every city. It's an unstoppable mission that we get to be a part of today here at King's Church. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.